Thank you, church. Thank you for joining us here this Sunday afternoon. It was a privilege to be able to serve at Vacation Bible School this uh, past week. As you saw from the pictures, uh, the kids learned scripture. Uh, they learned about the parables of the seed and the sower. And it was a wonderful time to be able to see the light of Christ shown into the hearts of those children. Uh, some of them being mine, some Pastor Richard, and we had a few visitors as well with us. So it was a privilege to be able to be a part of that. But as it is for us now, we open to God's Word to the 16th chapter of Acts, And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. If not, uh, it is uh, up there on the screen behind us for your convenience as well. But as we come to Acts chapter 16 this week, we are picking up where we left off two weeks ago, where Paul and Silas found themselves uh, at the uh, turmoil of the uh, in turmoil at the city of Philippi as they were persecuted for proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We left off in Acts chapter 16, verse 24, with them being in chains. They were beaten and bloodied and bruised, and they were wondering what was going to happen to them as the uh, magistrates and the council came back to reconvene the trial that took place uh, just some few hours before they found themselves to be in that prison, wondering how it was they were going to be able to respond to the persecution that they were faced with there in that city of Philippi. And so as we turn there today in Acts chapter 16, verse 25 to verse 34, what we see is the response that Paul and Silas give to both the persecution as well as to their persecutors. And in this, what we're going to learn of today is the valuable truth that all of us can take with ourselves as we are evangelizing to the lost around us knowing that there is going to be those who are repulsed at the gospel, there are going to be those who become incensed at us proclaiming the gospel, we can take these words that uh, Paul and Silas uh, give here in Acts chapter 16, verse 25 to verse 34 to heart, to be able to apply them when we face persecution as we share our Christian witness with the world surrounding us. And so if you haven't done so already, uh, in Acts chapter 16 is where we'll be at today, starting at verse 25. And it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this blessed opportunity that we have to be able to come to consider your holy scripture. Lord, we know that in it we have the the instructions that are needed for the daily Christian life, Lord, that you teach us, you train us, you equip us for the training up in righteousness that we may be equipped, thoroughly equipped, perfect for every good work, even the work of evangelism. And so, Lord, as we come to this passage here now, I pray that you would equip us through your word to be able to be more faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ, to not uh, shrink back or cower in fear at the uh, possibility of persecution and evangelism, but rather to learn how to respond when persecution comes, both to the persecution as well as to our persecutors. In doing this, we know that we will be able to see a, 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 right, a right harvest that you have brought about, as we see here happening today in the life of the Philippian jailer. And so, Lord, may you impart to us the words of life that we look at now here today from Acts chapter 16 through your Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Richard Wormbrand writes, in the year 1956, he had been in prison eight and a half years. He says he lost much weight, gained ugly scars, been brutally beaten and kicked, derided, starved, neglected, questioned, and threatened. He says none of this produced the results his captors were seeking, so in discouragement they turned him loose. Again, I witnessed to hidden groups of the faithful, coming and going like a ghost under the protection of those who could be trusted. Eventually, the ceaseless interest of the police in my activities and whereabouts paid off for them. Again, I was discovered and imprisoned, this time for another five and a half years. The year was was 1555, and a man by the name of John Philpot, who was the son of a knight and an Oxford graduate, was faced with an ever-surmounting pressure to recant his faith in Christ and to return to the Catholic confession. 
Philpot was relieved of his duties and summoned to defend his views. He did this with conviction and intelligence through a series of 13 colloquies separated by various periods of prison and confinement. For several of these prison terms, he was not allowed books or pen, as if the absence of the tools of the mind would eventually bend him to recant and join the queen's spiritual cadre. On the 14th examination, determined to finally rid themselves of John Philpot, his last interrogation had a stark simplicity about it. Whatever his reason for believing as he did, he could either recant or die. The year was 304 A.D., and Alban was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who was facing the edict of the Roman emperor Diocletian, which called for the murder of Christians. While staying at the house of a minister, he learned that the magistrates in that city were coming to arrest the minister. Alban, who was converted by this minister, took his place to go before the magistrates. Being brought before the magistrate as he was offering sacrifices to the pagan gods, Alban was ordered to be dragged before the pagan gods, being ordered to receive the punishment the same punishment the minister would have received if Alvin had indeed become a Christian. Alvin was then given the opportunity to recant his faith to secure his release. It is the record of Christian history that Christians have often been faced with the possibility of having to respond to persecution as they go about proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. In just these three examples that I have given to you, there are countless others that would show to us the realization that every single individual who faithfully witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ is inevitably going to face persecution along the way. That it cannot be avoided, that these individuals who are proclaiming Christ are not often seeking it out, but nonetheless, it just comes their way. It is a necessary, it is a necessary activity that the Christian must be able to be able to reconcile in their Christian witness that they would be able to respond to persecution rightly. That as a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would respond to persecution in such a way that their light would not be extinguished by the world and its evil desires. As Satan in his spiritual warfare wishes to extinguish the light of Christ in our lives as torchbearers for the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be ready to respond as faithful witnesses to the Lord in order that our Christian witness would remain. Now, how do these people respond in these situations that they are in? How do we respond in these situations that we find ourselves to be in? Will we be faithful to the Lord or seeking to save our own life? Will we recant our faith? In order that we will be able to be removed from prison or removed from being ostracized in the community, will we recant our faith or will we faithfully proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, if we think about our own life, we might find this to be difficult to imagine. Here in America, we don't have persecution, much like what we see happening throughout the entire world. Individuals who are forced to recant their faith, lest they be stripped of their duties, of their job, of their livelihood, of their family structure. Individuals today, Christians today, are still faced with the insurmountable task of witnessing for Christ in the face of extreme persecution, persecution even to the point of death. And yet we don't have, and even though we don't have this in our day and age here in America, we must always be at the ready to respond to persecution as it comes. As society drifts further and further away from God and His principles and His Word, we are going to find ourselves tempted to recant our faith, and if not to recant our faith, to limit our Christian witness because we are fearful of the response that the community might give to us as we faithfully proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, we must not allow the fear of man to dictate our witness. Rather, we must take to heart the Word of God, which tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that anyone who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We must take this to heart, recognizing that for anyone who wishes to live a life of witness unto the Lord, who wishes to live a life that is pleasing to God, pleasing to His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to face persecution. Now, this verse doesn't tell us how much. It doesn't tell us in what way we would expect it to come. But it does tell us that we must be prepared to respond to persecution when it comes and respond rightly. As Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, he's not writing to him in order that he would be able to avoid persecution. They say, do this to avoid it, do that to avoid it. Rather, he is saying, when it comes, stand firm in the Lord as a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling on him to be prepared to face the persecution as it comes his way way. 
Now, as we think about this, as we, as we think about uh, these examples that we'll look at here in Acts chapter 16 and, and throughout uh, the rest of our time together returning to those examples that I have just given to us, we might ask ourselves, how do these people respond to the persecution? How do these people face this persecution as it comes, uh, it comes their way? It's inevitable that it's going to come, so how do they respond to these things? Well, it is the record of Acts that Acts teaches us time and time again of the faithful response of the believers as persecution comes their way. As they go out and evangelize the unbelieving world, they are faced with it. It just comes their way. It's inevitable that it comes, and we looked a couple of weeks ago at why it was inevitable, but that is because it is a spiritual battle that we partake of when we evangelize. It's not merely in the physical realm that we are seeking to bring people to the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also spiritually speaking, Satan and his demons are seeking to keep the dominion that they have over the lives of the unbelievers, and so they are going to fight back as we fight for this individual to be able to know the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must understand that in in evangelism, persecution is going to come. But some of us might say, well, good, I know how to avoid persecution then. I stop evangelizing. Many of us don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be persecuted. I'm sure many of you do not want to be persecuted. It is not a natural state that we would have ourselves to be found in. But in spite of this, we must know that we must be called to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, that even though evangelism is going to come, uh, persecution is going to come in evangelism, that, that does not mean that our Christian witness must be relegated to the backseat of our conversations. Rather, it must be discussed openly, plainly, and with a conviction and authority that proclaims that this is the way, the truth, and the life. That what we are saying is not a suggestion to these individuals that maybe they could believe it. We are not saying to them, well, you can come to God in your way and we'll come to God in our way. Rather, we are giving them with the utmost conviction the truth from God's Word. And this is going to incite, incite individuals to be frustrated with our witnesses to the point where they may even persecute us. And what often happens when this, when this happens is we often will limit our Christian witness, but this is a shame. And it's a shame because this is not what Christ intended for us as He gave us of His Spirit in order that we will be able to faithfully evangelize the lost. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we are told that the Holy Spirit was to come. And as the Holy Spirit came upon these believers, He would empower them to be witnesses. He would make them bold witnesses, not timid witnesses, not those who shriek back because of persecution, but rather those who boldly profess and proclaim the name of Christ in the persecution as it comes. And consistently throughout Acts, we have seen that this is the case. The evangelism happens. As they evangelize, the persecution comes. And as the persecution comes, they remain faithful to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ, as faithful witnesses through the power of the Spirit of God. When Peter and also John were persecuted and brought before the Sanhedrin and the council, and they were beaten and told not to speak about Jesus Christ any longer, they rejoiced that they were able to share in the sufferings of Christ. And they continued to evangelize in that city, saying, whether it is right for you or not, what we should do, we will obey God rather than men. We will proclaim the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come to this passage today in Acts chapter 16, verse 25 to 34, we are going to learn of two responses that Paul and Silas would have as they faced persecution. These two responses we're going to see deal with the fact of how they responded to the persecution and also how they responded to their persecutors. Two things, how they responded to the persecution as it came and how they responded to the ones who were doling out the persecution, namely their persecutors. Now, to refresh us of this situation, I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at this, I want to recall to your mind the events that have taken place here in Acts chapter 16. At the beginning of Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas take along with them Timothy to do the work of ministry. They take Timothy, and also Luke joins them later on in verse 11 or verse 10, and as they are going about into the world, Asia Minor and throughout those regions, they are seeking to find out where God would have them to be faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And so they go into one place, and God says, no, don't go there. You need to go away from that place. And they say, okay, well, we'll go to this place. And so they go to this place, to Bathynia. They try to head up, head up to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus would not allow for them to do that. And so they say, okay, we can't go down to Asia Minor where Ephesus is. We can't go north to Bithynia, so 
where should we go? Well, they travel along this straight line, and they make it all the way into uh, the area of the Aegean Sea on the eastern side. And on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea, they find themselves having a vision from God by a man in Macedonia who says to them, come over to Macedonia and help us. And as they receive this vision, as Paul receives this vision, they seek out together, is this where God would have for us to go? Does he want us to go to Macedonia or what we know as present-day Europe? And they, they, they deem that God has called them to do that. And so in chapter 11, it's chapter 16, verse 11, it says, setting sail from Troas, they made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. And in our time these past few weeks, as we've looked at Acts chapter 16, we have determined the evangelistic endeavors of Paul and Silas and his missionary team. As they got started here in Philippi, things were going great. Wonderful, really. They went to a place of prayer by the riverside, and they met this woman named Lydia, who along with her household was holding a prayer service. Paul and Silas, as they got there and they saw them praying to God, they were able to share the gospel with them and tell them about Jesus Christ. And Lydia and her household were saved. The first church that was, uh, the, the, the church was planted there in Philippi as Lydia invited them into her house, and they were able to have those worship services together. Well, things went on, and in verse 16, it picks up, Luke picks up by telling us, as they were going back to this place of prayer, which was probably an early meeting place for their church, as they would evangelize and also worship the Lord there, they found themselves uh, approached by a little girl, a young girl, who had a spirit of divination or a spirit of python, and she was a fortune teller. And as she was following them, she was shouting at the top of her lungs, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, we might think that, well, this is good. This is exactly what they're doing. But in reality, what was happening was this, was, this young girl was in, under the influence of the demonic oppression that she was under, and Satan was seeking to, by having this young girl say these things, infiltrate Christ's church, Christ's mission. And so Paul, becoming greatly annoyed at this young girl as she kept shouting these things, he cast the demon out of her, he exercised her of the demon, and her slave owners became enraged at the loss of their gain. Now, as they became enraged at the loss of their gain, Paul and Silas found themselves in the position of many faithful believers. Namely, they found themselves being persecuted for evangelizing the lost. Wherever they were, they found themselves persecuted for evangelizing the lost. And so these slave owners, they took them into the city. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to practice. And so the crowd grew in a rage and they rioted. And they beat Paul, they beat Silas, they stripped him of their clothes, and the lictors who were there, or the policemen as we call them, had these rods, these billy clubs, and they just started whipping them on their back as punishment for their crimes. And on top of this, they sent them into the prison, the innermost part of the prison, the dungeon, where they were beaten, bloodied, bruised, without food, without water, possibly even uh, really dealing with some very extreme injuries which could have been left open, if they were left open, would have been given over to infection, not given any help, but rather thrown into the dungeon, cast into the stocks with an unlawful trial without any opportunity to, uh, to respond to their own, to be able to give an, a defense to the charges that were against them. And they are just sitting there waiting, waiting to see what is going to happen to them. And as we come to verse 25, we get to Luke's account of the response that Paul and Silas give during their evangelistic endeavors here in the city of Philippi. And as we come to verse 25, we see how they responded to the persecution that came their way. We initially see how they responded to the persecution as it came, and to refresh our minds, we look just to verse 25 to see their response to this suffering as it came to them. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, note this in their rejoicing. You see, they responded to this persecution with joy. But we must note this in their rejoicing. They were not rejoicing at the fact that they were being persecuted. Rather, they were rejoicing in God. It tells us here they were singing and praying, and they were praying and singing hymns to God. You say, how could this be? How could this be that they were in a terrible, terrible situa situation, and yet they are here singing and praising God? At this point at midnight, they are unable to sleep due to the extreme discomfort that would have come with them being placed in the stocks, being in excruciating pain, their, their back being bruised and cut open by the rods they were beaten with. How in the world could they be joyful in a situation such as this? And not only this, but also joyful in the Lord Himself. How could they be joyful in this situation and also joyful unto the Lord? You see, this idea runs so contrary to the mindset of today, which has its worship of God dictated by its circumstances. 
We think that when times are good, we can praise God, but when times are bad, well, there's nothing left to praise God for. I ought to just have a pity party for myself, uh, singing the blues, going around singing the blues like uh, Louis Armstrong would sing, you know, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but me. That is the, the reaction that we often have when we face trials, when we face persecution in our day-to-day life. We have a pity party before God and say, God, why me? Why have you allowed this to happen in my life? Why have you allowed this to happen to me? Look at these people are the ones who are wrong. These are the people that should be persecuted, not me. These are the people who should be in jail, not me. Why would you allow this to happen to me in my life? God, how could you allow for these things to happen to me in my life? That's often how we respond to persecution. That's often how we respond to trial. We, we, we blame God, or, or in, in the blaming of God, we flee from what God has called for us to do as being His faithful witnesses. But not Paul and Silas. Not Paul and Silas. You see, Paul and Silas, as we read of here, are not only praying to God, but also singing hymns. And you can say, well, I can understand them praying here. I would be praying here if I was in prison. I would be praying, Lord, get me out of this jail. Lord, get me some medical help because my back's bleeding. My back is, is, is burst open from these wounds that I have, and I'm worried about infection. God, I, I need some food. God, I need to be released from this prison. We can understand if they were praying that. We don't know what they were praying, but we can understand if they were praying that. But, but they're praising God in this? How can they be praising God in a situation such as this? Well, you see, what Paul and Silas teach us is a valuable lesson here as it pertains to our worship of God. Though we can worship God because of the circumstances He has placed us in, our worship of God is not dependent upon our circumstances. Our worship of God is not dependent upon our circumstances, which are constantly changing. And the reason for this is because even in our circumstances, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves to be in, God is. God remains the same. If we are in persecution, if we are in trial, if we are in suffering, or if we are in blessing, if we have all things going well for us, God has not changed. Therefore, God is still worthy of our worship and of our praise. You see, in our times of trouble or our times of blessing, God is. He does not change. And so you say, well, how could they respond to this persecution with joy unto the Lord? Well, because they knew God had not changed. God did not change. The same God who had called them there back in Acts chapter 16, uh, verse uh, 6 to 10, where, they gave, where God gave them the vision of the man in Macedonia, the same God who gave them safe travel to get into Philippi, the same God who given them, gave them the opportunity to be able to proclaim the gospel to Lydia and her respond in saving faith to the gospel as it, was, as it was proclaimed, this same God has not changed from who he was just some few days prior to this. God remained the same, and therefore God was worthy of their praise. As Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28 says, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We could also take, for example, what Paul writes to the Philippians, the same place he was in, Philippi here. He writes to the Philippians at a later time in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, while in prison, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, notice, if you will, Paul doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when things are good. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when things are bad, but rather he says rejoice in the Lord in everything. In everything, in every situation, always we are to be rejoicing in the Lord, not rejoicing in our circumstances, not rejoicing in our blessings, not rejoicing in the conversions of the lost, but rather rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, he will say, rejoice. You see, we can rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances because we trust him. We trust that God is still the great I am. That even if we face these difficulties in our lives, if we are finding ourselves beaten, imprisoned, and bloodied because we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know that God still is the great I Am, and we can trust Him. We know that He will turn these situations to good, even if it does not mean our release, but rather it may mean that He will lead us as we are in prison to share the gospel with someone and proclaim the gospel to them, and they respond in saving faith. We know that God will turn our situations to good. You see, there are so many Christians today who become miserable in their trials because they have been taught both by the world and by the church that our situations or our circumstances dictate our worship. 
in the world. If things are going good, we can say, oh, yes, you can have joy in these things. But if things are bad, well, you can't have joy in this. That's what the world teaches us. You have a nice car. You have a nice house. You have a nice job. Well, you should be joyful. Well, you lose your job. You lose your house. You lose your car. Well, then you should be depressed. You should kill yourself even, what some people might uh, counsel you to do. This is not the Christian life. God has called us to joy not because of our circumstances, but because of who He is. He is the great I Am. He is the one who is our comforter. He is the one who is our peace, and we can trust Him in all situations, in all circumstances. Now, this is not only the world that has taught us wrongly, but also the church as well. The church has taught us to rejoice in our good times, but to lament and to blame God in our bad times. Now, this is not all churches, but there are many individuals today through going through the Christian life who are taught, mis- misled really, to rejoice only in their circumstances when they are good, but when they are bad, well, then you can blame God. You can forgive God for Him allowing you to go through these difficulties. If we go back to the Old Testament for a moment, we can learn of the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk was one of the minor prophets, and he was prophesying during a time when Israel was rejecting God, when God's people were rejecting God, and God prophesied unto Habakkuk and told him that because of their rejection of God, he was going to send them into captivity at the hand of the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk grew grew weary from this. He said, God, how can you do these things? God, how can you allow this suffering to happen to your own people? His lament to God coming out clearly in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, saying, You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk, throughout the first two chapters and even into the third chapter, is often lamenting to God at the fact that God is going to allow this to happen to his people. He is saying, how can I praise you, God, because of the fact you are allowing to do this? How are you still a good God allowing for these things to come? How are you a good God when you are going to allow everything that we know, everything that we've had, everything that we could ever proclaim to be ours, how can you be a good God when all of these things are going to be destroyed and we are, being, we are going to be taken into the captivity of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians? How in the world can God do these things? Well, as Habakkuk learned to trust God, knowing that the righteous shall live by faith, in the final words that Habakkuk writes in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, 17 to 19, we read these words of Habakkuk understanding what the worship of God ought to be coming from, where his worship of God could come from. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places." You see, Habakkuk realized something. He realized what Paul and Silas and what many faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have realized. God does not need to be worshipped by the circumstances He places us in. Rather, God is to be worshipped because He alone is worthy of our praise. And so this is what we see Paul and Silas doing here. They are praising God, rejoicing in Him always. And you say, why? How can I get to this point? How can I get to this point where I can, like Habakkuk, where I can, like Paul and Silas, rejoice in the Lord even as I face persecution? Well, we must know our God. We must know who our God is. We must know that He is the one who will turn all things bad to good, that He will use the evil of man, the evil that man intended to destroy us to good, to bring about glory from these things. We can trust in God to fulfill His perfect plan of redemption for all of mankind. And if that means His part of His plan is us suffering, we can trust Him in that, knowing that He does not change even in the sufferings. As we looked earlier in Acts, if you were with us many months ago now, in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 5, in Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 12, when the church was persecuted, when the church was persecuted for their witness in the Lord Jesus Christ, God always turned it for good. God always used it to strengthen His church. And so Paul and Silas, though they were sitting there in that prison, beaten, bloodied, bruised, wondering if they were ever going to be able to be freed from the chains that they were in, they praise God because they had joy in Him, not in their circumstances. Now, can we say the same? Do we realize, like Paul and Silas, the one who gives us songs in the night, 
that God is the one who will give us joy in the darkness, that He gives us a song to sing whether times are good or whether times are bad. God is worthy to be praised, that we could have this, that we could respond to our persecution with joy in the Lord. You say, well, Paul and Silas were titans. They were the ones, they were godly, they were God-fearers, they were full of the Spirit. Paul was an apostle. Silas was a leader of the Jerusalem church and the church at Antioch. I'm not like these individuals. I cannot respond in, this, these, in the way that these individuals respond. I'm me. Who am I to be able to respond to persecution in such a way? How could I be like Paul and Silas or like John or Peter or, or Barnabas or Stephen or those who face persecution with joy and gladness in the Lord? How could I be like these individuals? I can't. I'm just me. I'm just a little old sinner here in Hollywood, and I don't have the same faith that Paul and Silas had. You see, if we think like this, we think in the wrong terms. Because as Paul and Silas and Peter and John and Barnabas and Luke and Timothy and all the rest of the faithful and Acts, all of these individuals, as they responded to persecution with joy, they did not do it because they were someone great. They did not do it because they were better than us as Christians. They did so. They responded with joy because they had the Spirit of God in them. The one who was promised to come in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to make them bold witnesses unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in the Lord today, you have the same Spirit who rested upon John and Peter and Silas and the rest. And you can have boldness in your trials if you would but lean on the Lord for understanding. If you would but lean on the Lord for the joy that He alone can give to you as you proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, we see how they responded to their persecutors. And this is in verse 26 to verse 32. And as we read it, I want us to see if anything pops out to us as we think about the response that they give to their persecutors here. It is a fruit of the Spirit, much like what we've just looked at, the fruit of the Spirit of joy. Joy was happening to them as they were, they were experiencing joy as they were responding to the persecution. Well, what fruit of the Spirit came about in their lives as they responded to their persecutors? Well, it says here, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. You say, how did they respond to their persecutors? They loved their persecutors. How did they respond to the one who had had them in chains? They loved their enemy as the Lord Jesus Christ called for them to do. And so not only are we to have joy in our persecution, but we are to respond to our persecutors with love, specifically the love of Christ. Now, the persecutor here was the Philippian jailer. And you say, well, there were other people who persecuted him there back in Acts chapter 16 uh, all the way to verse 24, leading up to where we are here now in verse 25 and onward. There were other people who persecuted them. Why don't we know about how they responded to them? Well, the Word does not tell us. But what the Word of God tells us here from verse 26 on to verse 32 was that God gave Paul and Silas a divine opportunity to be able to respond to their persecutor with the love of Christ in order that they would be able to, in turn, proclaim the gospel message to him. They responded to their persecutor with the love of Christ, and really the account here is absolutely incredible. If we think about it, this is totally the work of God. This is totally the work of God, the divine work of God, to place Paul and Silas in a position where they would be able to respond to their persecutors with the love of Christ in order that they would be able to hear the gospel message. And so Luke pictures here for us this idea that they're singing, they're clapping, they're praising the Lord in prison. They're probably singing maybe Psalm chapter 113, which is, Blessed be the name name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And as they're praising the Lord with these psalms, as they often would do, we can imagine that all of a sudden here, the Lord sends this earthquake, as Luke tells us. He says, and about midnight, as they were singing, suddenly there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison shook. There was an earthquake. 
There was a theophany, as the Scriptures call it. God reigned in that place. He shook the earth in such a way that all of the prison doors were violently sprung open, and also their chains, which were more than likely fastened to the prison walls, which probably would have been in a hillside or a cliffside. They were fastened in there. All of their chains were become loosed, and they were able to be freed from the prison that they were in. They were freed from their bondage. Paul and Silas were praising the Lord, and you would think, well, God, you freed us from prison, so we need to get on with ourselves. We need to get out of here. But no, Paul and Silas did not respond in that way. Rather, as we will see, they waited for the jailer to come because they saw it as an opportunity to be able to proclaim the gospel message to this individual. Sometimes, as earlier we saw in Acts chapter 4, when God breaks open the prison doors, it means for us to escape. Other times when God breaks open the prison doors, we must stay put if it is going to give us an opportunity to share the gospel message with an individual. And, but you see, as we see here from Luke in verse 27 all the way to verse uh, 29, this spelled terrible news for the jailer. This was terrible, terrible for the Philippian jailer because the Philippian jailer was, was responsible to his prisoners with his life. He was responsible to his prisoners with his life. If his prisoners got away and they were not recaptured, the jailer would have to respond to the same punishment that the, uh, that, that the, uh, the, the, the criminals would have had to respond to. And so that may, namely meant his life was at stake. And so it's no surprise that we read of in verse 27 that when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He immediately reached for the dagger that he would have kept on his person. It's a small sword is what it says in the Greek. And he was getting ready to just stab himself right in the heart or slit his throat, however he was going to kill himself. He was at a loss. He knew his life was over, or at least he thought his life was over because he had looked into the prison and did not see Paul and Silas and the rest of the prisoners there through the darkness of the night. He was ready to kill himself. And, and, and yet, as he was ready to kill himself, we see the love of Christ shine through Paul and Silas here. We see the love of Christ shine through Paul and Silas here as, as they can see the man through the darkness. They probably see his shadow there as he's looking down into the prison with the, with the dagger up ready to stab himself. And Paul and Silas shout out, Do not harm yourself, for we are still here. Now think about the situation that Paul and Silas are in. Think about if you would have responded in that same way. Think about the position that the Philippian jailer had just put them in. He did not care for them. He could have cared less would have happened to them. And now Paul and Silas are in an opportunity where they are able to save this man's life by saying to them, no, don't kill yourself. We're still here. The jailer, you, you don't need to kill yourself. No one is left. We are right here with you. We are right here. You see, thinking about this relationship that this man had with Paul and uh, Silas just some few hours before, this jailer had thrown them into the prison. Now, remember the condition that they were in. They were beaten with the rods. They were bloodied. They were bruised. They had not eaten. They were given an unfair trial. They were not able to respond to the trial that was against them. And on top of all of that, the jailer placed them in the stocks. Now, the stocks that they placed them in are much different from today's stocks. The stocks you've placed in now, you think about it, your head's in there and your arms are in there, and it's probably not too comfortable, but it's not that uncomfortable, and you're just waiting there till you're released from them. These stocks were much more difficult to endure. These stocks they placed you in were, were, were by your feet, and the Romans had created them in such a way that they were able to spread them out in such a way that it would cause extreme discomfort, almost putting people in a split-like position in order that they would not be able to re, uh, remove themselves from the prison, but also to keep them in extreme discomfort as they were awaiting their trial day to come. Paul and Silas were in a terrible, terrible position, and this is the position that the jailer had left them in. And on top of all of this, not only did the jailer put them in the position that they were in, he didn't even care about the position they were in, because as we read in verse 27, he was knocked out prior to the earthquake waking him up. He did not lose sleep over what they were going through. He could have cared less if they died there in that prison that night. He could have cared absolutely less about anything that would have happened to these individuals. And so this is how the jailer left them. Was this man deserving of any love or kindness from Paul and Silas? Was this an individual that deserved to be shown the love of Christ by Paul and Silas? Well, by man's standards, absolutely not. But we are called to a higher standard. We as believers are called to a higher standard, namely the standard of God Himself. As Jesus called, to us to, called for us to do in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
You see, we are called to love our persecutors. We are called to care for our persecutors. And Paul and Silas, we don't know what they were praying for, but maybe they prayed that God would give them an opportunity to share the gospel with this man. Well, God answered that prayer right away as he called, as he sent this earthquake to shake the prison bars open, to shake them loose from their chains, and to awaken the jailer from his sleep. And God said, okay, you want to share the gospel with this person? You want to share the love of Christ with this individual? Here's your chance. Respond to it faithfully. And Paul and Silas, beaten, bloodied, bruised, probably discomforted to uh, the utmost end because of the stocks that they were in, were given this opportunity to love their persecutor or allow for their persecutor to die, to kill himself, to, to commit suicide and slit his throat in order that he would be able to escape the punishment that was given to them. And so we see here Paul and Silas showing the love of Christ to this man in two ways. In the first way, it was shown in the fact that they met his physical needs. They met his physical needs. Here was this man about to kill himself. He needed to be saved from imminent death. And Paul, witnessing all of this, could have said nothing. He could have let the man kill himself. After all, he probably deserved it. But Paul shouts out and says, Do not harm yourself, for we are still here. You see, the jailer at this point, as he hears these words, as the jailer hears these words from Paul, do not harm yourself for we are all here, he's probably thinking he's hearing things. He's woken up from his sleep. He's woken up with this large earthquake. He can't see anything in the prison cell. And so he's probably thinking, well, I'm just imagining this. And so he calls in verse 28 for the lights. And as he calls for the lights, they all rush in and he sees these people are actually still here. What are these people doing here? Some of these people are in prison, probably going to be killed for murder or whatever charge that was against them. Paul and Silas are still there. They could have escaped, knowing that if they do not escape, they're going to be beaten even more. What are these people still doing here? Well, it was an opportunity to witness to the jailer the love and mercy and grace of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It was an opportunity for them to share the mercy and grace of Christ that, 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 that they saw this opportunity to be, and so they loved this man just as Christ had first loved them. You see, Paul would later write in Romans chapter 12 this wonderful truth, this wonderful truth about how we ought to respond to those who are persecuting us. Going to Romans chapter 12, verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You see, Paul had an opportunity here with this Philippian jailer. He could have responded in the way that the world would have responded. He would have gotten vengeance upon this man. Here this man wants to kill himself. Paul saying, yep, go right ahead and do that, you worthless little you-know-what. Paul was probably thinking all, he could have been thinking all of the worst things that individuals in the world would be thinking. But, not, not, but were it not for the Spirit of God upon him, he would have seen this man avenge himself. He would have killed himself because he thought Paul and the rest of the uh, individuals who were in jail had escaped. But because of the love of Christ, because of the Spirit of God who is in him, he allowed for vengeance to be the Lord's. He, the Lord will repay. And to the contrary, as it says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. This is what Paul did here. And, and really, the enemy, the persecutor, uh, th that persecutor being the Philippian jailer, had burning coals heaped upon his head in one way or another. Now, Paul didn't literally heap burning coals upon his head, but you can imagine the Philippian jailer was like, what is wrong with these people? How could they respond in such a way when, when, when I have persecuted them, when I have treated them so cruelly? How could this individual care for me? How could this individual call out to me in order that I would not kill myself? Well, Paul would tell him it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of the love that Jesus Christ had given to him that he was able to display the mercy and grace that is found in the gospel. You see, the one who is persecuting us upon our returning their evil for good, doing this may give us an opportunity to share the love of Christ with this individual. 
Instead of returning their insults with insults, instead of returning their evil for more evil, we could instead return their insults with blessings. We could return their persecution with, with, with blessings as well and caring for them even though they have not cared for us. And in doing this, it may lead us into an opportunity to be able to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with that person. And this is exactly what happened here in the case of Paul and Silas. After they have done all of these things, after the man comes in there and sees this happening, in verse 30, we read the Philippian jailer say, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Do we see how this event has played itself out? Do we see that God had given them this opportunity to be able to respond to their persecution with joy and to respond to their persecutor with love, with, with concern and with care, and that in doing that, God led it into an opportunity of evangelistic witness where they were able to share the gospel with this individual? Do we, do we realize that, that this is one way in which God works in order that He would give us an opportunity to share the gospel with those who we are she- seeking to share the gospel? Too, that, that we can love our enemies, and as we love our enemies, it will give us an opportunity to be able to proclaim the truth of the gospel message of our Lord Jesus Christ unto them. You see, to love someone as, as Paul does here, as, 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 as Paul will do here, then he not only loves them with the physical love, that, that, that giving to the physical needs of this man, but in the second way that we see he loves them here, we see his love for this man in the response that he gives to the jailer. We see this love that Paul gives to this jailer and the response that he gives to them as the man says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Paul met this man's needs. He could have said, I've already saved your life. I kept you from killing yourself. I'm not going to help you any longer, any further than this. But no, God in his great mercy and love led Paul to be able to respond to this most important, pertinent question that anyone can ask, what must I do to be saved? God led Paul to be able to respond to it by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul tells them that not only are the blessings of salvation available to you, the Philippian jailer, but also to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You see, this is one way that we can love our enemies. We can love our enemies by meeting their physical needs, but more importantly, we can love them by sharing with them the truth of the gospel. We often think that it is unloving to tell people the truth, or at least that's how our society thinks. Let everyone believe what they want to believe. Let everyone think what they want to think, and, and that's how you love someone. That's what our society says today in this relative the relative uh, knowledge that everyone has. Well, I believe this. This is my truth. This is, this, this is their truth, and so we're just going to keep this all to ourselves. No, Paul did not say, well, well, you can be saved by however you think you can be saved. Let the Greek God save you, or let your work save you. You could be saved by any of these things. Paul did not say that. Rather, Paul said to him very clearly, there is one way to be saved, and that is only through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to love someone is to tell them the truth about their condition before God, that the greatest need of man is not their health, it is not their finances, it is not their broken marriage. Rather, the greatest need is that man stands before God in a wrong relation unto him apart from the saving work that Jesus Christ has accomplished on Calvary. We must tell them that they are in the wrong relationship with God, that they stand condemned because of their sins with no possibility of forgiveness lest they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. Man needs this Savior, and given all that, uh, all that man has, all man has the same need, namely all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God has made a way that there is only one Savior, and that is His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we read in verse 31, this, this simple answer to the simple question, Paul says, you want to be saved, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. You see, as we think about this contrast that is given to us here between Paul and the Philippian jailer, a few hours ago, the Philippian jailer could have cared less about Paul and his injuries, Paul and his, and his uh, 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 really wounds that he has and the hunger that he has. But here and now, Paul, knowing the condition that this man had left him in, rather than saying, well, you're going to get what you deserve as you stand before God, rather gives them the life-saving knowledge of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as verse 32 tells us, he went on to proclaim to this man the message of the Lord in full detail in order that this man upon his faith in Jesus would be saved from his sins. 
You see, as I have mentioned, I mentioned once more, love is not merely meeting people's physical needs, but rather their spiritual ones. And if we leave anyone without sharing the message of the gospel, we fail to love them in the way that Christ has first loved us. You see, it's easy for us to share the gospel with people who, who meet our needs, with, with people who we care about, with people who fit the mold that we think is uh, necessary for one to be able to believe the gospel by. But the reality is, is God has called us to share the gospel to whomever it is that He places in our paths. It is not only to those who treat us with kindness or those who place us in a position to share the good news with them, but rather it is to anyone. Let anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be saved. And whether they are our enemies or our friends, we must call, uh, we must allow for them to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We must take the time that is necessary to impart to them the truth of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, how do I get to this point where I can love like Paul loved? How do I get to this point where I can even share the gospel with my persecutors? Well, it goes far beyond looking to Paul. It goes far beyond looking to Silas because the love that Paul showed this man here is nothing compared to the love that our great God has shown to us in His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, just as the jailer was undeserving of Paul's love, so also was Paul undeserving of the love that Christ had given to him. But Christ reached down and saved Paul. Christ has reached down and saved us, us being undeserving of his love. And Christ reached down and not only told us of our sinfulness, not only told us that we have sinned and fallen short of his glory, but he also gave us a way out. He gave us the way into His kingdom. He gave us the way into eternal life by not only telling us that we were sinners in need of salvation through His name, but also He told us that He had come in order that He would be able to take on the weight of God's wrath on our behalf and defeat death for our, in our place and, and to be brought into resurrected life in order that by our faith in Him we would have our sins cleansed and be brought into everlasting life, into the, into the eternal rest that the Lord Jesus Christ is bringing us into. If we wish to love our enemies, we must be constantly reflecting on the love that God has shown us to, first shown us through Christ, His Son, our Lord Jesus. We must, we must, if we wish to love our enemies, we must always be considering the love that Christ has shown us first. But you say to me, why must we do this? Why should I respond to my persecution with joy? Why should I respond to my persecutors with love? Why should I do these things? Well, we see from verse 33 to verse 34, our final two verses, why, why it is that we are called to respond in such a way as this. Verse 33 says, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You see, why, why do we respond to persecution with joy? Why do we respond to our persecutors with love? Well, because God uses it. He often uses these circumstances that we find ourselves to be in in order that He would be able to lead many to salvation. We see that we must respond to these things in such a way that God would be able to use them in order that many would be able to come to the saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul could say in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul knew that in his sufferings and in his blessings, God could use either of them as an opportunity for Paul to be able to proclaim the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ to that individual. To that individual, Paul looked at him and said, whatever situation you have me in, Lord, I am going to use this situation as an opportunity to share the gospel message to them. You see, we must understand that if we faithfully respond to God in the midst of our persecution and, and, and towards our persecutors, God can use it to do tremendous things. God can do it to you, do tremendous things, even the saving of souls. As we see here in verse 33 to verse 34, the Philippian jailer was saved along with his whole household. And not only was he saved, but it resulted in a transformed life. And as it resulted in this transformed life, not only were Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and Lydia and her household able to proclaim the gospel in the city of Philippi, but now they had a larger church, a larger fellowship, which in turn allowed for them to reach a larger amount of people in that city of Philippi. They had the Philippian jailer in his household now. The church was expanding. And so if we think about it, if we think about how does Christ grow his church, how does 
does Christ often move His church along? Well, one such way that He does it is through the faithful response of His church to the persecution that He has allowed for them to be faced with. Christ will build His church, and He often does so by allowing His church go, to go through persecution. To, and then the church responding in faithfulness to His name, God uses it often to build His church. And not only does He use it to build His church, but He also uses it to restore the relationships here, Paul and, and this Philippian jailer were enemies, really, just some few hours before. But now we read that as the Philippian jailer was saved, he took Paul into his house, he washed his wounds, he gave him food, and he allowed for him to stay with them for a time. And not only did he allow for them to stay with them for a time, but they also rejoiced together. Not only was it Paul and Silas singing hymns, but now the jailer was singing hymns with them. What a transformation. What an awesome work that God did here in this city of Philippi. God truly made an incredible, an incredibly bad situation into a prosperous one as he turned Paul and Silas' situation from evil to good. This is what God does. This is what God is in the business of doing. He often turns the most difficult of situations into good. This is who our God is. Therefore, we can rejoice in our persecutions and we can love our enemies knowing that God will turn them to good. And now the question becomes, will we? Will we, upon responding to our persecution and persecutors, will we respond in the same way that Paul and Silas have done? Or will we be like those who are in the world today who when they face trials, who when they face sufferings, allow themselves to become a hermit of a man or a hermit of a woman, uh, fearful of facing anything because they're worried about what might happen next to them? Will we be like those in the world or will we be like those who have been called to faithful witness unto the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that, knowing that Christ will do His work in the building up of his church, even if it means we have to suffer for a time for Christ's purposes to come about. Now, I want to close with a bit of encouragement to you. I want to close with a bit of encouragement to you to show to you that the same God who equipped Paul and Silas to face their persecutions with boldness, to face their persecutions with joy and gladness, is the same God who is at work today. He is the same God. He is still working through the midst of His believers in order to equip them to respond with joy and love for their enemies in the midst of the persecution that they are undergoing. And in the beginning, I mentioned three stories for you. Three stories, one of Richard Wombrand, one of John Philpot, and one of a man back in the year uh, A.D. 303. These are three tremendous stories that I left off telling you about how they were left with this opportunity to respond to their persecutors. I left us with, uh, with wondering how would they respond to these things? How would they respond to the call to recant their faith? How would they respond to the call to, to give up their faith in order to save their own lives? Well, one such example I have before you today is about the man by the name of Richard Wombrand. This movie that we're going to be watching in a couple of weeks, Tortured for Christ, is about Richard Wombrand. And in his uh, writing, in a documentary about his life, or in a book that he wrote about his life, he writes about how he responded to the persecution that he was faced with. How he responded to it with joy and gladness and love for his enemies and saw God do tremendous things as a result of his faithful response to the persecutors. And I have the book here. And I'll read it exactly as Richard Wombrand wrote it. If you'd like a copy of this book, we have them available for free in the foyer. But he writes this as his response to his persecution and his persecutors. He says, We made a deal. We preached and they beat. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guard suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloodied and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing, and said, Now, brethren... Where did I leave off when I was interrupted? He continued his gospel message. I have seen beautiful things. Sometimes the preachers were laymen, simple men inspired by the Holy Spirit who often preached beautifully. All of their heart was in their words, for to preach under such punitive circumstances would no trifling matter. Then the guards would come and take the preacher out, of the, out and beat him half to death. In the prison of Gerala, a Christian named Greku was sentenced to be beaten to death. The process lasted a few weeks, during which he was beaten very slowly. He would be hit once at the bottom of the feet with a rubber club and then left. And after some minutes, he would be again hit. After another few minutes again, he was beaten on the testicles. 
Then a doctor gave him an injection. He recovered and was given a very good food to restore his strength, and then he was beaten again until he eventually died under this slow, repeated beating. One who led this torture was a member of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, whose name was Reck. During the beatings, Reck said something to Greku that the communists often said to Christians. You know, I am God. I have power of life and death over you. The one who is in heaven cannot decide to keep you in life. Everything depends upon me. If I wish, you live. If I wish, you are killed. I am God, so he mocked the Christian. Brother Greku, in this horrible situation, gave Reck a very interesting answer, which I heard afterward from Reck himself. He said, you don't know what a deep thing you have said. Every caterpillar is in reality a butterfly if it develops rightly. You have not been created to be a torturer or a man who kills. You have been created in the image of God with the life of the Godhead in your heart. Many who have become persecutors like you have come to realize, like the Apostle Paul, that it is shameful for a man to commit atrocities, that they can do much better things, so they have become partakers of the divine nature. Jesus said to the Jews his time, of his time, Ye are gods. Believe me, Mr. Reck, your real calling is to be godlike, to have the character of God, not a torturer. At that moment, Reck did not pay much attention to the words of his victim, as Saul of Tarsus did not pay attention to those of the beautiful witness of Stephen being killed in his presence. But those words worked in his heart, and Reck later understood that this was his real calling. Reck became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are countless other examples that he tells of in his book. He tells of these times when he responded to the persecution and the persecutors with joy and with the love of Christ, and he saw God do a tremendous work through it. And so we are left with this question, can we respond in the same way? Though we may not be persecuted in the same way that I've read to you or in the same way that is shown to us in Acts chapter 16, but in the event that persecution comes, can we respond with joy in the moment and also love towards our persecutors? Can we respond in this way knowing that we cannot always be sure how God will work out our situation, but rather knowing that God is good in all times and in all things and we will trust Him even when we don't understand why He is allowing for us to go through these things? Can we respond in faith as Habakkuk has done? As I have read, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places." Can we, as the faithful, respond in faith to our great God, knowing that in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the suffering, God is good and His love endures forever. Church, we must understand we, we serve an awesome God and we are called to live for Him today. May we do that by the power of His Spirit who dwells upon us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day that You have blessed us with to be able to open Your Word and to be able to consider before us the example of Paul and Silas who were, who were really beaten for their faith, who were imprisoned for their faith. But yet even in this imprisonment, it did not hinder their witness. Rather, their witness was able to go forward, to really go forward with a boldness that is unmatched, a boldness that is only given through the power of the yielding unto Your Spirit, Lord, trusting in You, trusting in your ways, trusting in the plans that you have before us. Lord, may we, as Paul and Silas and the rest of your faithful have always done, may we respond to persecution with boldness, with joy and gladness. And may you also give us the strength to love those who persecute us as we know how difficult, how difficult of a task that is before us. But we know that in your strength we can do that. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us power to be able to respond to our persecutors this week with the love of Christ in order that by our response we may be able in turn to share the gospel message with them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.